One way or another, the name of Jesus is bound to provoke a strong reaction. He remains a mystery and a curiosity to some, although he's a source of embarrassment or perhaps an object of hostility to others. For example, let me just give you this little test. The next time you sit down next to someone at the coffee shop or a bar, or the next time you're introduced to someone at a cocktail party, just start talking about Jesus and see what happens. You can say, well, I, I've recently become fascinated with the pe person of Jesus, and I'm reading everything I can about him. What do you think is going to happen? When I am introduced to people at parties, I find that I often have to prepare people for my response to the question, so what do you do? I might say something like, well, you could say I sell a form of life insurance. No, I'm kidding. I don't actually say that. But I am concerned about triggering people, so I have to prepare them for my response. I'll say, well, it's a little bit of a conversation stopper, but I am a Presbyterian minister. And usually it is a conversation stopper. They either shut up or they walk away. Or let's say you're in school and you have to write a term paper, and you ask your teacher if you could write a term paper on the topic of Jesus. Well, there's a good chance your teacher is going to dissuade you and encourage you to choose a different topic. Now, you can write about anything else. You can write about Buddha or Gandhi or Karl Marx, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Now, you see, there is something deeply offensive about Jesus, especially in New York City. Now, we might think that this is a uniquely modern problem. We might think that ancient, ancient people didn't really have to deal with this because, well, they were fascinated with Jesus because they were more gullible. But we modern people were more mature, were more sophisticated, and we just don't buy all that stuff about Jesus as the Messiah. And that's why it's slightly irritating to us when people bring Jesus up in conversation. But actually, the passage that we're going to look at today shows us that this is not merely a modern problem. No, it was an ancient problem, too. Jesus is inherently offensive, if we see him for who he really is. See, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, even John the Baptist was offended by Jesus. He sends messengers to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one, or should we look for another? Now, that's a searching question, but it's also a disheartening question. What that reveals is that even John the Baptist is struggling with the identity of Jesus. And so John asks the modern question that we're all asking, are you the one? Are you the one? That's what we want to know. So today we're going to begin a new sermon series through which we will explore the authentic Jesus, which will carry us through the next several weeks, the next several months. We'll consider who he is, what he did, why he matters. And we will start out today by considering Jesus' offense. We're going to turn to Matthew 11. It's just a short little passage, and yet it contains so much for us to learn. So I'd like us to focus on three things. John's problem, John's question, and John's promise. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open a Bible to Matthew 11. You'll find the passage printed in your order of worship. It can also be found on page 816 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. So first, let's take a look at John's problem. What's John's problem? Well, actually, he has two problems. He's got a problem with his life, and second, he's got a problem with Jesus. First of all, he's got a problem with his life. Look more closely at verse 2. The reason why John sends some of his own disciples to ask Jesus a question is because he can't do it himself. He's in prison. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sends them to ask this question. Now, the thing you need to remember is that John the Baptist was a superstar. He was the first celebrity prophet. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that people were pouring, pouring out of Jerusalem, and in fact out of the whole country, to go see him and to hear him. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that John the Baptist sparked a revival. He caused a sensation. And part of the draw was that he spoke truth to power. He didn't back down. He was willing to risk it all, and as a result, he paid for it in the end. He challenged the powers that be. He locked horns with Herod, and Herod, as a result, has him thrown in the slammer. So here's John the Baptist now, languishing in prison. His life is literally hanging in the balance, and we know it's not going to go well for him. It's only a matter of time before he's killed, before he's beheaded. But it's at this moment when he sends messengers to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you the one who you claim to be? Now, think about this for a minute. John was an early supporter of Jesus. He backed Jesus' messianic claims. He was the forerunner. He was the one who prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. In fact, John encouraged some of his own disciples to become some of the first disciples of Jesus. And now here's John in prison, irrelevant and forgotten, because everyone has gone after Jesus. And you see, it easily could have been the case that John might have started thinking in prison, hold on, hold on, hang on. I did everything right. I did everything that I was supposed to do, and now why is this happening to me? If you are the one, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, then why is my life such a mess? I committed myself to you wholeheartedly. I gave up everything for you, and now here I am in prison. Why would God allow this to happen to me? How can I believe in you, given the suffering in this world and the suffering in my life? You see, he's got a problem with his life. And I've met a lot of people who struggle to come to Jesus. They struggle to commit to Jesus. They, they struggle with Christianity because they refuse to believe that there can be a good and loving God given the harsh reality of life. How are we supposed to believe? How can I accept that Jesus is the one when my life is so hard? It doesn't seem right. So what about you? Is that what is holding you back? Is that what is preventing you from committing yourself to, to Jesus? You, you've got a problem in your life. But John doesn't just have a problem with his life. He's got a problem with Jesus. He's got a problem with Jesus himself. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 6. This is a very, very odd statement. Blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Now, isn't that strange? (laughs) This has got to be the weirdest beatitude in the Bible. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And in fact, the, the word used here comes from the Greek word, scandalon. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Now, why on earth would Jesus say something like that? Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The only reason why he would say that is because he understands that John is offended with him, and he's encouraging him to work through that offense. So he understands that that, that John has taken offense. Now, later in the same passage, Jesus will say that up until this point, there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. John is the greatest of all the prophets, and yet even John, even John, is offended by the the person, the claims of Jesus. He's scandalized by him because Jesus doesn't fit his expectations of who the Messiah would be, and it causes him to doubt Jesus' identity. He starts to think, well, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I got it wrong. So do you see the contemporary relevance of John's problem? This is what everyone in New York City is dealing with, believers and skeptics alike. John asks the skeptic's question, but he was a believer, which shows us that even as believers, we're going to struggle with Jesus' identity. We're going to struggle with his claims. We're going to be offended by him. We're offended by his claims. We're offended by his teaching. We're offended by his demands. We've got a problem with Jesus. So all of us, I would suggest, are, are struggling with problems in our lives, and we may very well be struggling with Jesus himself. Many people have said to me, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I want to know if it's true. I want to know if Jesus is real, but I'm struggling. And let me give you a couple examples of the things that people might say to me, the things that they're struggling with. These are all very typical. Let me give you five. A person might say to me, I'm lonely. I want to be in a relationship. I I, I want to get married. I want to have a family, but it's not happening. So I want to know if I commit myself to Jesus... Will he make me happy? Will he bring that special someone into my life? Will he bring me that love of my life? Or someone might say, I'm I'm uh, I'm ambitious. I'm an entrepreneur. I've got all kinds of drive. I've got all kinds of ideas. And I want to know, in light of the obstacles that I'm facing, if I truly dedicate and commit myself to Jesus, will he help me achieve my goals? Will he make my company a success? Or a person might say, I'm gay. I'm attracted to people of the same sex, and I'm thinking about committing myself to Jesus, but I want to know, will will Jesus support me? Will he affirm me in my life choices? Or will he challenge my decisions? Will he confront me? Will he condemn me? Or a person might say, I'm transgender. I feel like there's been a mistake. I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body. If I give myself to Jesus, will he help me with a gender transition, or will he point me in a different direction? Or fifth, the person might say, I'm political. I'm an active and engaged citizen. Politics is everything to me, and I want to know, if I give myself to Jesus, will he help me pursue my political agenda to make the world a better place? Or will he change my politics? See, how would Jesus respond to all these questions? It's complicated. But notice what all these questions have in common. They're all basically asking, will Jesus help me with my problem? 
Will Jesus help me with my problem? Will he support me and affirm me in the way in which I want to go? So before I commit, I want to know, will Jesus help me live my life the way that I want to live it? Now look, John, he's got his problems. But John also knows that that is the wrong first question. Those are all fair, legitimate questions to ask. We can ask those questions, and we should, and I'd be more than happy to talk to you about those questions, but they're all the wrong first question. They're the wrong first question because you'll never know who you are or how you're supposed to live until you first figure out who Jesus is. You'll never understand yourself until you first understand him. That's why figuring out who Jesus is is the priority. You have to figure out who Jesus is first and foremost before you know who you are. I mean, how, how would you ever know who you are or how life works best until you first figure out whether or not you were created and whether or not there is a, a creator God who's come to us in the person of Jesus who knows how life works best? How could we ever know how the human person is supposed to live until we first know whether or not God is real and if we can have a relationship with him? If God is real, then whatever God loves, whatever God affirms in us, forms the real you. And whatever runs counter to his purposes will only distort us. It will prevent us from truly thriving and flourishing as human beings. So the first question is to figure out who Jesus is, not whether or not he can help us with our problems. So you see, John asks the right question. He doesn't say, help me with my problem. He says, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? If Jesus is not who he claims to be, if he's nothing more than a great moral teacher who's a little bit more enlightened than the rest of us or a little bit more in touch with the divine, well, then it doesn't really matter what he thinks about any of those things. And he can't ultimately help you with any of your problems. But if he's the one, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, well, then, no matter what he asks of you, no matter how radical, no matter how sacrificial, no matter how costly, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because nothing could compare with knowing him and being known by him. Anything he asks would be worth it. So we have to start with the question that John asks, are you the one? He asks the right question. And notice what he doesn't ask. Two things. John doesn't say, if you are the one, break me out of the slammer. If you are the one, get me out of dungeon. Get me out of the prison. Get me out of trouble. In other words, he doesn't say, prove to me that you are the one by solving my problem. Now, of course, he could have said that. When Jesus began his public ministry, he said that he had come to set the captives free. Well, here's a captive. Here's a supporter. Here's a friend. Not just a friend, a relative. This is Jesus' own cousin. It's his cousin. And so John could have asked, Jesus, prove to me that you're the one by setting me free. But that's not what he asks. Now, I've met a lot of people who assume a problem-centered approach to Jesus because this is essentially what they do. Prove to me that you're the one by solving my problem. If you heal my body, if you fix my relationships, if you make me happy, if you give me success, then I'll know. Then I'll know that you're the one. But it doesn't work that way. Look, if you say, I'll believe, I'll follow you, if, if you solve my problem, you do realize 
That's not a question. That's an ultimatum. You see, if you are dictating terms, if you are laying down conditions, well, then you're not serious. You're not serious about trying to figure out who Jesus really is. You're not interested in knowing who Jesus is. You're not interested in an answer. You don't really want to know. If you say, I'll follow you, maybe. If you help me, support me, affirm me in the decisions that I've already made about how to live my life, then you don't want an answer. Now, some people will say, look, I, I, I've been trying to figure out if Christianity is real, if Jesus is for me, but I'm not finding any answers to my questions. But that may very well be because you're not asking the question. You're not asking whether or not Jesus is for real. You're not looking for information. So if you feel like you're stuck in your search, if you feel like you're not making any progress, you're not making any headway, you don't know whether or not you should commit yourself to Jesus, it's probably because you don't really want to know who Jesus is. You're not open. You're not open to him. And that's why John asked the right question. You have to ask, are you the one? And if you do, without any conditions, without any strings attached, without it dictating any terms, that's what'll change everything. It'll change your perspective on suffering. It'll change your perspective on relationships and work and sexuality and gender and politics. It changes everything because that's the hinge upon which everything else turns. turns. Are you the one? But notice a second thing that John doesn't say. He doesn't say, are you the one or should we stop looking? You see, if you reject Jesus, you'll never stop looking for him. Because we human beings, we cannot live without an ultimate source of meaning, fulfillment, purpose, satisfaction, contentment, joy, truth in our lives. And if we don't find that in Jesus, then we'll spend the rest of our lives fruitlessly searching for him everywhere else. We will turn something else into a God substitute. We'll turn something else into our functional savior. And it very well may be that we turn to relationships or work or sexuality or gender or politics to be that God substitute, that functional savior. But whatever that God substitute is, will it heal you? Will it forgive you? Will it complete you? Will it restore you? Will it challenge you? Will it lift you up? Will it comfort you? Will it fill you like Jesus? See, if you reject Jesus as the one, then you'll never stop looking for him. You will fruitlessly look for him everywhere else. So you see, John asks the right question, and for that reason, he receives a remarkable promise. And this promise is for you too. Jesus promises that the ones who receive his blessing his favor, his acceptance, his approval are the ones who are not offended by him. Verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. But it's such a strange way of putting it. Why doesn't Jesus say, blessed is the one who likes me, who affirms me, who endorses me, who embraces me? That's not what he says. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. But why does he put it like that? Why does he put it like that? How do you become that person? How do you receive this blessing? Well, the only reason why Jesus would put it exactly like this, think. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying, in order to receive my blessing, 
You have to wrestle with my offensiveness. You have to see it. You have to taste it. You have to feel it. You have to understand it. You have to see my offensiveness, but ultimately do not take offense. In other words, in order to receive this blessing, you have to see the offensiveness of who I am, but then you have to work through it. You have to deal with it. And then you'll be blessed because that's how you know you're dealing with the real me. See, if you don't see why Jesus is offensive, then you're not dealing with the authentic Jesus. You're probably dealing with some sentimental view of Jesus, some, some figment of your own imagination, a God of your own conception who indulges your own desires. But if, on the other hand, you ultimately take offense, well, then it means that you're not actually considering all the evidence that Jesus provides for who he really is. So blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You have to see it. You have to taste it. You have to understand it. You have to feel it. But do not ultimately take offense. You have to work through it. You have to deal with it. And that's what John does. John was offended because Jesus didn't fit his expectations for who the Messiah would be. He thought that Jesus would purify the nation, drive out the Romans. He thought that Jesus would, would bring wrath, destruction, judgment. And that's not what he does. But here we see the tenderness of Jesus. He's not offended if we're struggling with his offensiveness. He doesn't say to John, how dare you question me? No, he says, look, it's good that you're offended because it shows that you're dealing with the real me, the authentic me, rather than a God of your own fabrication. But now, don't stop there. Work through that offense. Deal with it, and you'll be blessed. And that's why Jesus sends the messengers back to John. Go tell John what you hear and what you see. Consider, look, think. Faith is not the absence of thinking. It's the presence of thinking. So Jesus wants John and all of us to look at him, look again, and think. Consider, consider what you hear, what you see. Consider my words and my ways. Consider my astonishing claims, my incisive teaching, my radical demands, my breathtaking promises. And consider my ways my dramatic actions, my miraculous healings, my mastery over the created order, how I interact with the poor. Jesus is saying, look, you haven't met anyone like me. Look at how I treat people. Look at how I love people. I'm not afraid to dress down the high and mighty, and I'm not afraid to associate with the weak and the lowly. You haven't met anyone like me, so look, look, consider, look at my ways, look at my words, and deal with the real me, the authentic me, and then you'll be blessed. W.H. Auden, the poet, famously said in 1943, I believe, speaking of Jesus, I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams. It's such a startling way to put it. I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams, because he is in every respect the exact opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. See, that's how you know you're dealing with the authentic Jesus. The real Jesus will be the exact opposite of what you would have made if you could have created Jesus in your own image. Some of us have a holy crusader view of God. We think that Jesus is out to destroy us. No one is holy enough for him. So he's coming to take us out because of our lack of faith or our sexual promiscuity or because of our materialism or our consumerism or our greed. He's engaged in a holy war against us. But others of us are trying to turn Jesus into Mr. Rogers. Remember Fred Rogers? 
I don't have anything against Mr. Rogers. I loved watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a kid. But do you remember how he would end every show? He would say, you've made this day special by just being you. And I like you just the way you are. I like you just the way you are. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have to change a thing. I like you just the way you are. And many of us want to turn Jesus into Mr. Rogers, an inoffensive teacher of love and tolerance. But there's just one little problem with that from the standpoint of history. Why on earth would people gather together and conspire to execute Mr. Rogers? It doesn't make any sense. That makes a mockery of history. Why would anybody execute Jesus if he was Mr. Rogers? If you think that Jesus is a teacher of love and tolerance and nothing more, then you're not dealing with the real Jesus. Jesus was offensive. He was a scandalizer, and that's why they killed him. So you see, if your conception of Jesus is as a holy crusader or an inoffensive teacher of love and tolerance, that Jesus will never change you. That kind of Jesus will not electrify you or thrill you, but the real Jesus will. And that's what he wants us to see. That's why he sends the messengers back to John and tells them to report what they hear and what they see, and then he quotes Isaiah 35. Did you notice that? We read Isaiah 35 at the beginning of our service as the call to worship. Let me read it to you again. Isaiah writes, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, John thought that Jesus would be a fiery reformer like himself, and really sock it to people. In John's own ministry, he said that the axe is already laid against the root of the tree, and the axeman is getting ready to swing. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so that's the kind of Messiah that, that John expects Jesus to be because that's what Isaiah says. God will come with vengeance when he comes to save his people. And only then, and after that moment, then and only then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the, the lame will leap and the mute will sing for joy. But Jesus tells the messengers, go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. It's already happening. It's already happening. Now why? How? How can this be? See, John was right that the axe was already laid at the root of the tree. But when Jesus comes, he doesn't bring the axe down on you. Instead, he allows the acts of God's judgment to fall on him. Look at his ways. Look at his words. Jesus chooses the way of the cross. And that is the ultimate offense. That is the ultimate scandal. Because what does the cross tell us? We think that we have to choose. Either God is holy or God is love. 
but he's not one or the other. He's not a mixture of the two. He's not some perfect balance of holiness and love. No, he's pure holiness and pure love stretching to the extreme in both directions simultaneously. He is holy love to the nth degree. And the cross reveals that because the cross tells us that you are so lost, so lost, that only the death of God can save you. Look at the cross. See what happens to him. That's what you and I deserve. That's what we deserve. And he takes it in our place. So the cross tells us you are so lost that only the death of God could save you, and yet at the same time, you're so loved, so loved that Jesus willingly went to the cross, and he would do it even if you were the only one. Do you see that the cross is the place where God's holiness and his love come together perfectly and when you understand that that's what melts you that's what transforms you that kind of holy love is what electrifies you he'd be willing to do that for me oh if he's willing to do that for me then he can ask anything and i'll do it it'll be worth it see that's the ultimate scandal because the only way to receive this blessing is through grace and grace alone. The only way to receive the blessing of Jesus is to admit your need of him. But that's what unlocks the joy. That's what will thrill your heart. That's what will transform your life. So the promise that John extends, to, that Jesus extends to John, applies to you as well. Some of you may not be sure if you're a Christian. You may not be sure if you're a believer. You might have a sentimental view of Jesus. You, you enjoy coming to church because it's comfortable and it's familiar. You, you like the, the traditions of it. But you've never actually really dealt with the real Jesus. Well, now's your chance. And others of you, you know you're a skeptic. You, you know you've got doubts. Because you find Jesus deeply offensive intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, ethically, morally. Well, that's good. It's good that you're offended because it means that you're contending with the authentic Jesus. But don't just stay there. Do something. Think things through. Look. Look at his ways. Look at his words. Read a gospel. I dare you. Or join a community group. Join a Bible study. Now's a great time of the year to do that. And others of you... You're Christians. You, you've committed yourself to Jesus, but you know what the problem is? You're not experiencing the electrifying, transforming power of God in your life. Now, why might that be? Well, it may be because you are trying to tame Jesus. You're trying to domesticate him. You're trying to, to turn Jesus into some kind of inoffensive teacher. But if you want to unleash the power of God in your life, well, then you've got to let Jesus out of his cage. Let Jesus be himself and see what happens. You see, we're, we're offended by Jesus, but that's okay. We need to see the offense. We need to taste it. We need to understand it. We need to feel it. But then we have to work through it. We have to deal with it. Because then and only then will we be, will we be blessed. Let me pray for us. Father, as we begin this new year, we pray that you would help us to consider the authentic Jesus, not the figment of our own imagination, not, not a Jesus of our own imaginings, but the authentic Jesus 
revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Help us, Father, to understand who he really is. Help us to deal with the offensiveness, to work through it, and to come out on the other side so that we might be among those to whom you say, blessed are those who do not ultimately take offense. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. We ask all this in Jesus' name.